Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. I'm John Gibson and this is Gibbo's Corner. This is my chance to take you behind the headlines of some of the greatest Newcastle United stories. Thanks for listening and please remember to like and subscribe. Sponsored by Hoshin Motor Group, Northeast number one family-owned Toyota, Mazda and Suzuki dealership group. Hello and welcome to Everything is Black and White podcast. It's time for our Christmas episode of Gibbo's Corner. John Gibson obviously worked for the Chronicle for many, many years. He's here to bring you some Christmas cheer on what hopefully is a wonderful Christmas morning for you all with your brand new tablets, your brand new iPhones or what have you. Other phones are available. And we Merry hope Christmas to everybody. Yes, we hope you can download, subscribe, rate our podcast and you're listening to us just before you get your turkey dinner. John, um, just a quick message, I guess, to, to our listeners. Yes, um, Merry Christmas to everyone that's listening, uh, to all Geordies, May Christmas and the New Year that's coming up, give us everything that we're praying for, which no doubt is a centre forward and survival, but um, this is the time of year when we're always optimistic, uh, we all are, Merry Christmas, have a lovely time and let's go on and have a, some New Year. We racked our brains deciding what we were going to talk about in this episode mm. because we've covered so many legends of the game, so many topics and subjects. Um, and we looked at many ideas. And we, as John's mentioned there, we have a misfiring £40 million striker, <laughs> which is not something Castle fans have been used to recently, uh, you know, over the other decades. They've always had this brilliant man Absolutely. up front. The club's built on number nines, isn't it? But... For every goal scorer, there's yep. always a pair of safe hands at the back, and that's what we're going to focus on. It yep. is the legends that have stood between the two posts and kept clean sheets and performed miracles um, in defence. We're going to talk about you know the club's best goalkeepers. Well, there is um, as important as the centre forward, of course, because if somebody's throwing them in one end, it's no good. It's no good scoring three if the goalkeeper lets in four. Um, and we've had some right. Characters, some quality players. We've got Martin Dubrovka now, who I think really inspired me to think of, well, let's look at the other good goalkeepers Newcastle have, have had, because he has been an outstanding asset to Newcastle at a time where the forwards haven't been. We were talking about centre forwards, number nine. He has been between the sticks, has mm. been marvellous, and has set me off thinking if the goalkeepers I've seen down the years most certainly I mean just in the last two or three games and you look at Newcastle beating Sheffield United mm. Dubravka pulled off a few good oh. saves and there you look at the Southampton game he, he stopped yep. Nathan uh, Redmond from scoring great save two 
uh, saves in quick succession, actually, he, from Redmond. He's an outstanding goalkeeper. Yes, he'll make mistakes. It's physically impossible. And you remember them because if a goalkeeper makes a mistake, the ball's in the back of the net. If a centre-half makes a mistake, a goalkeeper will probably pull him out. If a centre-forward makes a mistake, it doesn't matter. Uh, but if if a goalkeeper makes one, it's in the net. So, yes, goalkeepers will make mistakes. But they are the lifeblood of the side. And thankfully, wonderfully, we've got a first-class keeper with us now. We definitely have. But more than being a good shot stopper, more than being a good communicator, you've got to have some character about you to, to be totally. not just a goalkeeper, but a goalkeeper for Newcastle United. Mm. I know the first name on your list... Um, Describe him as quite the character probably would do him a, a disservice. <laughs> Describing him as a lunatic it w- is <laughs> much more likely to uh, ring a bell. And he would be the first to say, Gibbo, you've got it exactly right. They say that you must be mad to be a good goalkeeper because you've got to stick your head in between flying boots, etc., etc. And if that is one of the first assets of a quality goalkeeper, then this fella had it all because he was as mad as a box of frogs, uh, he was a slate short of a full roof. He was a crackerjack. I'm talking about John Burridge, known as Budgie, who served us three times in reality. He served us 89 to 91. He was back in 93, and then he came here again in 94. And um, while he was a, a, a nutter and um, an eccentric, he was also, in his own way, a very, very dedicated goalkeeper, dedicated to the point of obsession in terms of the way he went about training, the sort of things that he did. Um, I mean, with weights, he, he was a weight fanatic. He was built like a, a weightlifter. He was built like Arnold Schwarzenegger. And um, that's what he was about. I mean, he went in... I always remember we went down to play at Leeds one day when Vinnie Jones was with Leeds, the notorious man. And as Newcastle were walking in, in their suits, having got off the team coach, um, he spotted Vinnie Jones, who I think was injured or whatever, in the gym doing weights and obviously looking the part as only Vinnie could when he built a Hollywood career out of it, for goodness sake, eventually. And he walked in in his suit and everything and said to Vinnie, move one side, son, I'll show you how to lift weights, and start lifting weights and putting extra weight on the edge in his suit and his collar and tie and embarrassed Vinnie Jones, who just couldn't lift what he was capable of lifting. And also, when he was on the team coach, I mean, as a matter of fact, he used to sit with the earphones on, but he wasn't listening to music. He was listening to motivational tapes, which was telling him how good a goalkeeper he was. So that by the time that he um, he got to the ground, he thought he was Superman. And in fact, he played a few times when he was Wolves, and he put a Superman costume on under his goalkeeping gear. And when he took the, his, his jersey off, he had the Superman underneath it. He sat on the crossbar before a game when he was at Blackpool and chatted to the crowd and said, it's great up here, I've got a great view of the game, etc. So used to do somersaults for where people used to walk round the 18-yard box, really measuring it out and maybe marking it out for angles, which goalkeepers used to do a lot more in those days. He used to do somersaults round the 18-yard um, box during the kick-in. I mean, he was as mad as uh, it's possible to be. Um, I always remember Peter Malinger, who was one of the directors at Newcastle when Budgie was here, saying 
and and who was a fanatical Newcastle supporter, Peter. I got to know him well, having confronted him because he was part of the board we took down with Sir John Hall. And so I had huge run-ins, and yet we got close afterwards because he owned Kettering after Newcastle United, and now on Gateshead, and we played each other. Uh, and he was obsessed with Newcastle United. And he said, well, he was Newcastle director, and he, on away games, he used to sit in the lounge on a Saturday morning before they went to the game, having a coffee, and Budgie would come down and sit in an armchair opposite him, and he would go across to Peter with a bowl of fruit and say, you have this, and it was apples and oranges, and he used to say, just talk to me, and suddenly throw one at me. And he would jump about catching the, catching the apple or the orange to, to, because of his reflexes. And, he, you know, uh, Peter said, I felt like some idiot. He said, but I said, did he ever drop it? He said, not once, not once. And, I mean, there was a funny tale, and Budgie told me himself, and um, it involves Arthur Cox, who... As it happens, this was at Derby County, but as it happens, Arthur Cox had managed Newcastle. He was the the guy that signed Kevin Keegan, of course, and he was a bit of a fanatic as much as Budgie was. And um, he had Budgie down at Derby trying to persuade him to sign for Derby County. And the talks were going on in um, Arthur's office. And... He suddenly said to Budgie, because they'd gone on and on and on and on, he said, uh, would, you, would you like a cup of tea, Budgie? And Budgie said, aye, I would love one. He said, right, I'll just go and boil the kettle. So he went out of the office to go and boil the kettle and bring a cup of tea back. But as he left the office, Budgie heard him lock the door. He locked the office doors so that Budgie was locked in while he went to get the teas. Now, Budgie was desperate to get away because he didn't want to sign and he'd been bludgeoned by Arthur. So he managed to prise open one of the windows in the office and he got he climbed out of the window outside, ran up to his car, which was up the road from the baseball ground, got in his car and he had to drive back down past the baseball ground to go away home. And as he was driving past the baseball ground, he saw Arthur Cox outside with the teapot coming back and realising that he'd escaped out the road. And he ran into the middle of the road, in the bollards in the middle of the road, Arthur, and as the car went back, flung the teapot at, at Budgie as he disappeared down the road in his exhaust fumes, not to sign from. And Budgie always said that... One of the things he did at Christmas time was that he always sent a Christmas card to every manager that he'd ever worked for. And in Budge's case, that was an awful lot. I think he ended up with 14 clubs or 15 clubs that he went for. He said, I sent a, a, he told me the tale, I sent a Christmas card this time of year to all his ex-managers. He said he used to send one to Arthur Cox and it used to come back ripped to pieces the card, put back inside the the envelope that had been sent in, and this man doesn't live at this address anymore. And he sent it back every year, every year to Budgie because he hadn't signed for him. Um, absolute cracker. He started off at Blackpool, which is where he made his real impression and um, when he was a young man, and he played for Bob Stoko, um, Newcastle centre-half in the... In the um, 50s Cup team, famous Sunderland manager, as we all know. Uh, and he was in digs as a young man down there with Keith Dyson, who was the centre-forward that had been with Newcastle when they won the European Fairs Cup. He was the, 
the cover striker in that side, and he was in digs with Tyker. And um, uh, there was a girl who lived just across the road from the digs called Janet, who Budgie got to know and ended up marrying her and, and has remained his wife all these years. And Keith Dyson was best man at Budgie's wedding. And um, by this time, Budgie had hit the big time and was at Aston Villa, but he come back to Blackpool to get married. Dyker was his best man, uh, ripped the, uh, the fun out of him with his speech in because Budgie was typically... It's unfair to say sick, but he was uh, sick. Uh, uh, in the nicest possible way, and he sort of said, you know, I knew Budgie when he went uh, to high school, it was on the top of a hill, and all this sort of thing which Budgie took. Um, but the, the amazing thing was that uh, when Budgie played for Blackpool, uh, and he was, he was loved by Bob Stoker, another manager who was a bit like Arthur Cox, a fanatic, and a bit like Budgie himself. And... Um, Later, when when Budgie was at one of his other clubs, he played against Bob Stoker, who might have been at Sunderland by then, beat him, and he saved everything that was thrown at him. And Bob almost attacked him at the end of the game in the uh, in the tunnel afterwards. So this was the guy that he used to adore, and um, Budgie laid Bob out with a left hook uh, under the, under the floor, and. A wild, wild, wacky world uh, with Budgie, but um, a man with great affection. And while he appeared to be just a crackerjack, he was one of the most dedicated footballers in terms of the amount of work put in you could wish to meet. He came back to Newcastle mm. under Keegan in 1993. Mm. Was that more about tapping into his experience? Yes, yes, it was. I mean, if you want a cover goalkeeper, um, then you can't do better than going and getting somebody like Budgie because um, for a start, you know that he's just going to be happy to play in football. He, he, he played football into his 40s and he famously um, uh, got sectioned um, and while people have said they've been... Um, obsessed by alcohol or something his problem was he said football and once he'd stopped playing football he thought life wasn't worth living anymore um and so but he knew he was going to live life right he wasn't a drinker he was totally dedicated to his fitness uh, he was going to help other goalkeepers around him and when he was called upon to fill in for the odd match he wouldn't let you down. Budgie was the right sort of character um, and just adored football. The trouble was that he had nothing else in his life and once he stopped playing, even coaching, uh, was never going to be the same for him. So we're going to go back in time yep. now to yep. a few names that I think many people will, will have heard of. I remember as a kid being told about um, the next uh, trio of names... Yeah. Who are, yeah. Who, who are we on Well, we, we, we'll start way back with the goalkeeper that won um, helped Newcastle win the FA Cup in 1951, which Jackie Milburn always said to me that of the three Newcastle sides that won the Cup in the early 50s, the best one of the three, and he played in all three, was the 1951 side. Uh, the goalkeeper there was Jack Fairbrother, 
um, who was as mad as Budgie, um, and and looked it. He 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 was um, he was a joker of the pack. He had big bulging eyes, a mischievous personality. Uh, when they went on, when Newcastle went on the way trips in those years. Um, it was often by train and they had their own carriage that was attached to the back of, say, the train to London um, where Newcastle were playing a lot. They put their own carriage on the back. The players were in the carriage. They got their meals served and it was completely private. So they were on the railway an awful lot in those days, unlike today. And Jack being Jack, when they were on the platform waiting for the train coming in, used to put his coat collar up on his top coat, get his goalkeeping hat out and put it on, pull it over his eyes and go round begging. Have you have you got a shilling, Governor? Can you help a poor man with a meal, etc., etc.? And he was just absolute crackers, but he was a wonderful, wonderful goalkeeper. And again, like Budgie, very dedicated. Uh, might be mad, but very dedicated in his approach to his profession. I mean... Um, when he trained with Newcastle United, he used to use the strikers, whether it was Ward Jackie or Ted Robledo or Viv, uh, Vic Gable, and he would get, he would tie one end of a, a rope round the goalpost, and the other end, he would, long rope, he would make the striker hold it, and then ask him to run in on him to have a shot at goal. And of course, the way he ran in, the rope tightened and he knew exactly the angle where he ought to be standing to feel that particular shot. And it was so unorthodox, it was untrue, but it was to get his angles right. And Jackie Milburn said that he was the only goalkeeper he ever played with where he was convinced that any shot that come at him, Fairbrother would be capable of saving it. And if you remember the Jackie Milburn played for England with legendary goalkeepers like Frank Swift and Bert Williams and Ted Ditchburn, it says an awful lot about what this guy, Jack Fairbrother, was and how good he was. Um, the interesting thing was that during the Second World War, he'd been a, a policeman, uh, Jack Fairbrother. He'd been a policeman, and he always kept goal in the early years in particular in a pair of white gloves. And when he was at Newcastle, uh, there were the white gloves which in those days were used by cops who were on directing traffic. You know, before you got the lights and all that, you had the, the copper standing in the middle of the road putting his hand up and, and he had white gloves to be distinguished. And, and Jack Fairbrother used to walk down from St James's Park to Market Street Police Station in the Newcastle City Centre to get the white gloves that they give him because he was next keeper and he wore them in matches for Newcastle. And he was a very different guy. I mean, because of the Second World War, Andrew, which, which took a slice out of every footballer's career, out of everybody's life, of course. But he was approaching 30 before he made his Football League debut for any club because of the war years, uh, and that is a considerable age. Which that makes the feat of actually winning the well, FA Cup absolutely. in at the age of, what, 34, 35? Yeah. Oh, I mean, he didn't start his league career until his late 
29. He must have been, uh, must have been extremely fit and to, healthy. Uh, hugely so. He signed for Newcastle July 1947 from Preston North End for 6,500 quid. Um, and he was, he, he was fit, he was dedicated, and maybe that's why he was so dedicated, because he realised that his life was short, his professional life was short because he was a late starter. I mean, I guess the only thing that was in his favour was that goalkeepers can go on longer than outfield players. Um, but there, there was... Uh, and he, he played in goal against Matthews uh, when they beat Blackpool 2-0, kept a clean sheet. Um, but there's a sadness about that story, which was told to me by Jackie Milburn later in life and um, confirmed by Jack Faber himself. At the celebrations, which were in... Uh, London in a hotel at King's at King's Cross after the cup final. Everybody was having a drink and wonderful. Bear in mind, this was Newcastle's first FA Cup win, the 51 one. Um, and Jack overheard a Newcastle director saying, it's the last time Fairbrother plays for us. He's finished now because he was over the 30, as, as we were saying. And he heard that and he was so stung and upset by it that he left, went up to his hotel room, packed his bags, come out of the hotel. Bear in mind there was going to be the huge reception when Newcastle went home in the train and was seen off at the central station on the top of a coach with the FA Cup paraded through town. He was so upset he was going to miss all that and he was just going home. And and he left the hotel without saying anything to anybody. Alerted when he did this was um, Joe Harvey and Bobby Mitchell. Oh, you've heard that the big man's... I've just seen him walk out and he had his bags. What's all that about? Crikey, me! So they give chase. They, they, they found him on the platform at King's Cross and persuaded him to come back to the reception and to be part of that reception and the great bus ride through the town with the FA Cup the next day. And the ironic thing about all that is one of the directors, obviously a little intoxicated, you know, the guy's finished now age-wise, that'll be his last game for us, so cruel, but by a freak, it was almost correct, because by the September, at the start of the following season, Jack Fairbrother broke his collarbone and never played football again. By the September, having won the cup in the May, he'd broken his collarbone, never played football again, and of course that is what opened up for the following goalkeeper to come in, which was 1952 and 55. And that'll be Ronnie Simpson. And that and it, was, yes. It's funny, all these names, uh, I was looking back through uh, some items in my parents' loft the other day, and I came across mm. the Toon Heroes, I don't know if our listeners remember, um, there were collectibles put in the Chronicle. Yes. Back in, must have been 2002, I think it was, and some of these names that I mentioned, Ronnie Simpson, yeah. were in there as well, and some of the names you've mentioned on previous podcts, obviously, like of Jackie Milburn, what have you, but it was great to go back through them and read about um, these, these players. And well, that they're part of our them. history, aren't they? Of they're part of our history. And the amazing thing is 
talking about Ronnie Simpson, which we now are, 52-55 cup final, he's the last goalkeeper to win a domestic trophy with Newcastle United. How frightening is that? Because since 55, yes, we won 69, but that was a European trophy. The last domestic trophy, as we are about to embark on the FA Cup with Newcastle this season at Rochdale, the last goalkeeper to win an FA Cup winner's medal, winner's medal, not loser's medal, because we've had a few of those in a few finals since. But the last one to get a winner's medal was Ronnie Simpson, whose career and was phenomenal. For any of the younger listeners who are listening and you know, love Newcastle history but don't quite realise it, this man, Ronnie Simpson, he made his, sen- his debut in senior football at the age of 14 years and 304 days. 14 years, by the way, for Queen's Park in goal. And by the time he'd finished, he'd won a European Cup with Celtic and his first Scottish cap at 36 years and 196 days. His first Scottish cap. And he went on to, he was over 40 when he retired from playing. He was the oldest debutant ever for Scotland. So at 14, he was playing first team football. And at at 36, almost 37, he got his first international cap. That is the definition of a long career. Most certainly. I mean, coming in and replacing someone like Febrother, not an easy task. Obviously, Febrother clearly had the respect of the, the dressing room and you get you getting Joe Harvey chasing you down King's Cross, you know. Yeah. How oh. did he how did he stand up to that challenge? Well, the wonderful thing was that he he was here before February got injured. And Jack, being the sort of lad that he was, took the goalkeepers under his wings and didn't see him as you're challenging for my position, so I don't want anything to do with you because I've I don't want to help you because you might end up better than me. He'd helped him a lot, both in terms of settling in at Newcastle and in terms of what the job was all about. Um, now, he was a very different goalkeeper to Fairbrother. Fairbrother was all about angles and getting his angles right. And he was not flamboyant, Fairbrother, because because he was such a good goalkeeper on angles, the ball always looked as if it was coming to his chest. He wasn't a great diver around flipping balls away because often a great shot stopper like that is because he got it wrong in the first place and he's got to produce an unbelievable save to get him out of trouble. Uh, Ronnie Simpson was, was a lot different. He was agile as a cat. He had the build of a toothpick. He was small, very small for a goalkeeper. He used to walk on the balls of his toes to make himself look, the balls of his feet, to make himself look that much bigger is a goalkeeper, but he was, he was a shot stopper because he had to be because of the size and the lack and the lack of weight. Um, and he saved as many... He, Jackie used to say to me, Jackie Melbourne, he said, Gibbo, this fella, because he was so agile, and he saved as many shots with his feet, maybe he's going one way and the ball was flicked the other way and, and, and he would kick it away. He saved as many shots with his feet as he did with his hands. Um the amazing thing is, when he was at Newcastle, playing the 52-55 Cup Finals, uh, he was finished by at Newcastle. He got a very bad muscle injury after seven successive seasons in goal for Newcastle. And 
he was seen at that stage because of the muscle injury that he'd had, that he was on the downward slope uh, towards oblivion, and he was sent back up home to sort of see out the end of his career. Um, as far as Newcastle was concerned, the glorious part of his career, unbelievably, was still to come. He went back home not to Celtic, he went to Hibs, to Hibernian, played so well for them that Celtic came in from, and of course, in 1966-67, the Lisbon Lions, the famous Celtic side, become the first British side, first British side, to win the European Cup. Can you imagine that being a, a, a Scottish side, not, not a Premier League side? I mean, a, a Scottish side win the Premier League. And he was in goal. That season, 66-67, every competition Celtic entered, which was the Scottish League, the two domestic Scottish Cups and the European Cup, they won every one. Every one of the competitions that went in that season, they won all four, and he was in, he was in goal with that four, and went on to keep goal for Scotland. Had a fabulous career. A lovely, lovely man. He, he then served on the pools panel from 72 into the 90s, uh, as Tony Green, another ex-Newcastle player, went on to do. And um, the last time I saw one, he was uh, in early February 2004. Uh, it was Bob Stoko's funeral at um, the Creme, in Newcastle, the Cremorium, uh, on the West Road in Newcastle. It was Bob Stoko's funeral, and of course, Bob had played in the cup final for Newcastle as a teammate of Ronnie. Ronnie come down for the funeral. We had a, a, a lovely chat. He looked healthy, fit, full of life, full of bounds, typical Ronnie Simpson. And yet, two months later, he died suddenly of a heart attack, which was a massive shock uh, to everybody who was round. But quite an exceptional goalkeeper, not only for Newcastle United, having played in the last two FA Cup wins, but for Celtic, where he's a legend and will be for the rest of time with the Lisbon Lions. It's quite funny you tell the story there about winning the Cup after Newcastle deemed him past Finished. his best. Yep. A bit like Frank Clark and, and Nottingham Forest. Totally, totally like Frank Clark. You're absolutely right. And what did Frank Clark go and do? Win the European Cup, the same the same as uh, as Ronnie Simpson did. Um, maybe he's a, a, a bit more outrageous because he, he was slightly older than Frank and, and he went on and got his first Scottish cap at, at 36, 30, nearly 37. Um, quite a, and bearing in mind, did he, can you imagine? I mean, we're used with people being young when they make their debuts and we think of Wayne Rooney and teenagers and Michael Owen at Liverpool with, with England, etc., etc. But this fella's club debut, he was 14. Can you imagine keeping goal at 14? Quite incredible, isn't it? Amazing. Um, we're going to stick with the path of success. Yes. Um, we're going to jump we into... We love that path for Newcastle, yes, the path of success. It's nice to reminisce, isn't it? <laughs> it is, it is, it um, is. Willie McFall. Yeah, um, yeah. European First Cup winning goalkeeper, of course. And I've kept going on about, you know, the, the amazing career of, of these guys and then taking Simpson the length of his career, 14-year-old to... 40 when he finished playing he played from 14 to 40 Willie McFall's career was phenomenal his Newcastle United career he served Newcastle unbroken for 22 years as goalkeeper reserve coach first team coach 
twice caretaker manager and then manager himself. He, he, he was at the club unbroken from signing for Newcastle in November 1966 right away through till 88 when he got the sack as manager. He played 387 games for Newcastle and an phenomenal 24 in Europe. And it was the first 24 games in Newcastle United's history, the, the first 24 European games. He played in every single one of them, didn't miss one. Uh, quite a record. And the amazing thing, though, he signed for Newcastle. How about this for, for having a... a, a, a a rehearsal he played for Lingfield against Newcastle in a friendly and he let in seven goals seven goals and yet played so well Newcastle signed him that must be quite a record for somebody to let in seven goals and a club say what a terrific goalkeeper he is and he come and signed for us and um, he was a shot stopper more or less in the way that um, Ronnie Simpson was uh, because he wasn't the biggest lad, um, he was he was slight certainly by goalkeeping standards these days, uh, which meant he was acrobatic and a very good shot stopper. And you kill, you can reel off almost straight away three matches where you think he was superb for Newcastle. The semi-final of the first cup when we when we won our first European trophy. We played away at Glasgow Rangers in the first leg of the semi-final. Nearly 80,000 people there. Not no draw. McFall saved the penalty. Now, if that penalty had gone in, how different might the first leg have been in and how different might the second leg have been With once Rangers were ahead? So that was huge. And then in the final, having got us to the final, out in Uspest, having won 3-0 at home, we got battered in the... Um, in the second leg, first half of the second leg, and we're 2-0 down at half-time, so it was only 3-2 on aggregate. But without Willie, it could have been... They could have had four by half-time. He was outside. And the third game, the third game, which stands out for me, was the Burnley semi-final of the FA Cup in 74, when four... <sighs> over the first half, uh, he played Burnley on his own. And Malcolm McDonnell, who got the two goals that took Newcastle to Wembley, said to me, I wasn't the Super Mac that day, the Super Mac was Mac Fall, um, uh, and he was. Just on the Fairs Cup there, you were wined and dined by the club the yeah. week to celebrate uh, the anniversary. What was, that, what was that like to save one back together? Absolutely, it was terrific. Willie was up. Um, Willie is now back living in Belfast, and uh, when he's not there, he's in the south where his son lives. Willie McFall was back up here looking as young, incidentally, as he looked when he played for us. It's unbelievable. Eh? Whatever he's on, I want to have a dollop <laughs> of it as well. He looked absolutely terrific uh, and looked fit. There's a lot of players now from that era, because you got kicked and surgery wasn't so good, who are hobbling about on very bad knees. Um, he was as fit as it's possible to be. And it was lovely. There was people coming from, uh, I mean, Dave Elliott flew up from Wales. Um, there was uh, Jim Scott come down from Scotland. Uh, Ollie Burton come up from Norwich, together with the ones that already live up here. And it was 
a wonderful, wonderful day. Not spoilt, although I felt at half time it was going to be spoiled because it was against Southampton and we were worn down. Uh, but if, if you remember, of course, we got Andy Cavill on who changed the total picture and we won 2 1 and completed a wonderful day. We hope you've enjoyed this episode so far. It's sponsored by Hodgson Motor Group, the Northeast number one family owned Toyota, Mazda, and Suzuki dealership group. Please remember to like and subscribe to the podcast through wherever you get your podcasts from. On just going back there to McFarlane and his, his playing style, I mean, what was he like? Because we, we, we've mentioned some great goalkeepers, but to have the respect um, of, mm. of Joe Harvey to say, right, you, you know, you're part of this fair, fair cup, you're going you're gonna to be the man who's going to stop the goals. Absolutely. Bearing in mind who Harvey played with as well. Yes. Um, we, oh. say, we say about Moncur, you know, the respect yeah. he gained, it must be the same for McFall. Well, yeah, because uh, Harvey had played with Fairbrother and Simpson, two of the great, great goalkeepers in Newcastle history. Uh, and he was the one that plucked Willie McFall out of Linfield and said to him, and Willie McFall should have had a pile, he was a quality goalkeeper and should have had a pile of international caps. Unfortunately, his era coincided with Pat Jennings keeping goal for Northern Ireland, who was one of the great legends of goalkeepers in any era you wish to have, and that could tell the number of caps he got. But um, he was a wonderful goalkeeper. He was consistent, and that is the secret of a goalkeeper, is to be consistent, and he was exactly that. Now, it's not often you think of a goalkeeper going into either coaching or management. And bear in mind, in those days, the coaching was as a coach. There wasn't specialised goalkeeping coaching when Willie McFall stopped playing. he just become reserve team coach, not goalkeeping coach. And you don't think of, of managers that were top goalkeepers. You'd be hard-pushed. Uh, Dino's off in, in, in Italy, etc., etc. But you're hard-pushed to think of managers who were top goalkeepers. Um, and yet Willie McFall went through, immediately he stopped playing for Newcastle, he went on the coaching side, remained on that, and then was appointed manager, and was manager for two years. Now, I always remember, that because he'd become a very good friend, he served 22 years at Newcastle, for goodness sake. He'd served 20 years by the time he was appointed manager. And I phoned him up the day he was appointed manager, and as he announced manager in Newcastle. I said, Willie? He said, I said, Gibble. I said, uh, just like to say, mate, that this is the, the first day towards you getting the sack. And said, oh, cheers, Gibber. Uh, I said, hey, you think about it. You've had a job for life here. If you stay on the coaching side, you've got a job until you retire. I said, but the minute you put your head above the pulpit and you become a manager, the biggest certainty is you're going to get the sack. And all good managers end up at some time getting the sack, including Brian Clough at Leeds. So it, it happens, and sure enough, it, it was going to happen eventually. But um, in that two years, uh, I mean, a very interesting time because he had Gaza around, etc., etc. And he got his place in history as a manager because um, he signed Mirandina, who was the first Brazilian to play in the Football League in its 100 years history, which was quite uh, amazing. Just before we get on to the next name, um, because the goalkeepers we're going to mention, the goalkeepers we have mentioned, so different, some very good communicators, some are more on the mm. quiet side, some are great shot stoppers, some aren't. 
for you, what is the one key element that everyone on your list, those that were still to mention included, yeah. had to become a great Newcastle United? Did they understand the club? Was that what it was about? Did they have a connection with the fans? Yeah, yeah. I think that is absolutely essential. There's a lot of essential things. You've got to be a good shot stopper. But in the main, you've got to dominate your box. Uh, it's no good being a liner who never comes for the ball um, because you're going to defend deeper and deeper and deeper. You've got to command your box. You've got to be vocal so that your centre-halves know exactly what's happening. Mine, get out of the way, etc., etc. You've got to be vocal. And you've got to... If you're a success up here, you understand the club and you understand the crowd because this is a different club to all the other clubs. This is a club that is huge, that has a massive following, that doesn't win things, that ought to win things, that fans care passionately about and they expect you to care as passionately as they care about the club. They expect you to do that. And if you do that, you've won half the battle and all these people were passionate people that I've been mentioning. On to the next name then. I'll be brutally honest with you and our listeners. It's a name I'd, I'd never heard of. Mike Mahoney. That's the one. Mike Mahoney, super goalie. That's what they used to chant on the terraces. Uh, Mike Mahoney, super goalie. Dee, 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 dee. He was the 1976 League Cup final goalkeeper. Uh, matters a box of frogs again, of course. But as we've said, that is often compulsory. My big mate, which is probably why you haven't heard of him, because I buried him, I think. My big mate, because he lived in Wickham, just round the corner. I lived in Wickham at the time. He lived just round the corner in Wickham. And we used to go, once a week we went booze and we went, I would go round for him and we used to go up into, we lived in Wickham, we used to go up into Burnup Field, a local pub just down off the main drag in Burnup Field where they had a karaoke and, and whatever. And we were in there every... Tuesday night, and he's one of the loveliest blokes, a complete character. He had a West Country burr. There was the Wurzels, who you'll never have heard of, it's, uh, but older people will. Some combined harvester. And that's the way he talks. He talks normally. Um, he signed for us from Torquay in August of 1970. He played nearly 200 games for Torquay. He's the guy that took over from Willie McFall at Newcastle, which took some doing. But as I say, played in 76. Um, the quality of him was that he won match of the day's save of the season, uh, which opened to the whole of the top flight goalkeepers over a whole season. And a save for Newcastle against Ipswich in 1975. He won, he won that award. He was... A wonderful character, as I say, a big mate. And um, after he left Newcastle, he went and played in America and stayed in America. And after he finished playing, he, he drove a, a, a lorry for a brewery, which I always thought was a very appropriate thing for Mike to do, actually, to, to, to deliver booze. Uh, and when I went over to the World Cup and uh, the World Cup finals in 1994, Obviously, I was travelling all over America where the different rounds were, and I ended up in Los Angeles before the final, and uh, Mahoney lived in Los Angeles, and he come down to my hotel and uh, slept on the floor in my room 
the Chronicle Room before the World Cup final of 74. And about four o'clock in the morning when we were sitting in the bar having a little snifter before going up to bed, Mike Mahoney, an athlete, always smoked. He smoked as a player, he smoked then, and he was smoking fags opposite me. I'd given up cigarettes for a year. I reached across at four o'clock in the morning, took one fag out his packet and said, one's going to be all right. That'll be lit up, wonderful. Before I knew where I was, I was back on the fags and I ended up smoking 50 a day. And it took us another four years or whatever it was before I gave them up completely. So that's the sort of effect Mike Mahoney had on this. But um, one one interesting story about him, which I must tell before I move on to the next goalkeeper, we went, we had a pre-season tour in Newcastle to Malta. And we were out on that. And the Maltese are wonderful, wonderful people. Um but they're big gamblers too. They love a gamble and they love a gamble on football. They're obsessed with football. And we were mingling after a day's training and we were, we'd gone into the bar just to sit down and have a, um, an apple juice or whatever. And there was all sorts of autograph hunters around. And this guy came over to me and said, uh, which one's the keeper? And I thought, oh, yeah, somebody that wants his photograph taken with a goalkeeper wants an autograph. It's, uh, it's the same over there, a guy called Mike Mahoney. And off this guy went to Mike Mahoney, and later on, when we were leaving, I said to Mike, eh, oh, I saw, I saw the guy went across and saw you. Was he after? I sent him over. He was asking who the goalkeeper was. I said, eh, was he just wanting an autograph? He says, no, actually. He said, eh, he wanted me to chuck a couple of goals in when we were playing this friendly Newcastle on, on the Saturday. Uh, now, a lot, a lot of money is made out on betting on football. And Newcastle were a top-flight club. They just finished fifth to qualify for the UEFA Cup. This was for UEFA Cup in 77-78. And they were going to play against Maltese part-timers. So if you could bet on the Maltese part-timers beating an English first division club that was just qualified for Europe, the odds were going to be long. And Newcastle had two games. They just played Sleema Wanderers and won for now. But they were going to play Floriana. That was their second match over there. Um, and this is when they were wanting uh, Mike to throw in a couple of goals. He never reported it because he just said, on your bike, well, it's not going to happen uh, get out and it wasn't a big game in Europe it was a pre-season friend but actually Floriana got a 1-1 draw with us now can you imagine if they had won and he'd been asked to to throw in uh, a couple of shots what might have come out of the other end of that it would have been an interesting uh, (laughs) yes an interesting outcome there Um, so from Mike Mahoney then on to Pav Cernacek Sadly, someone who was taken from us very, very young. Yeah. Um, died while out jogging back yeah. in his home home country. Um, and also, obviously, just um, earlier this month, sadly, Jim Smith died. Absolutely. Um, he was the manager who signed Correct. signed Pav. Um, we, we've told the story many times about how Pav arrived and it didn't go quite a plan on the first day. Yeah. Um, yeah. But interestingly, the, the character that, that it must have taken to go from having that shock of a first day, first couple of weeks, to then actually not yeah. just become a competent goalkeeper, but to become... A legend. A legend, yeah, He's exactly. become a legend, didn't you? Such guys? character. I mean, just to recap very quickly, and you're absolutely right, and um, we did a, a live gig 
recently when this guy Paul Montgomery was the scout that was working for Jim uh, for for the Bald Eagle, and and he had scouted Pav, and it was on his recommendation that he signed it January nineteen ninety one from Bannock Ostrova, um, and the interesting thing was that. Monty was obviously well pleased. This he's a Geordie lad, Newcastle United fanatic. This was his first recommendation for Newcastle. He'd signed for Newcastle, and he went up the training a couple of days later after Pav had been there, and the Bald Eagle spotted him on the touchline and said, "Hey," waved him over and said, "Said hey, who's this goalkeeper we've got here?" He says. I've signed flipping Dracula, he says. He's scared of crosses. And and Pav, who was a great shot stopper, when he first come to Newcastle, was a liner. Never left his line. And, and, and crosses were going through his hands or he wasn't. He was rooted to his line, not getting them. Centre-forwards were getting free headers. This is in training, etc., etc. Monty was so de- devastated and decimated by uh, what Jim Smith had said to him he went to hibernation for four days. He didn't lose his. He didn't leave his house. And uh, uh, Jim had to phone him up and say, "Where are you, Monty?" And he said, "Hey, oh, well, I've signed this keeper for you." And, and he said, "Hey, forget it. He's okay." Uh, he didn't. He couldn't speak the language, Pav. He couldn't communicate with his back four. Therefore, he got. Um, uh, he got used to the language and he become an absolute legend. He was part of the uh, entertainers. He was still here and part of the entertainer side. Served Newcastle twice. I mean, the real time was 91 to 98. He come back in 2006 to 2007. But then again, a bit like when Budgie come back, he was a cover goalkeeper that you knew you could rely on. But the years when he was big for us was 91 uh, to 98. And um, he become an absolute legend. And if you remember when he was part of the Kevin Keegan the early Kevin Keegan sides that put Newcastle on the road to redemption. Um, when he was parading around St James's Park, he took his um, jersey off, and underneath that was Pavis Ajori, um on his emblazoned on his T-shirt, and that became the name of his autobiography when he wrote his book. Even though he went on and played for. Sheffield Wednesday uh, in the uh, Serie A in Italy, etc., etc. Such a quiet man or quiet character. So f- such a friendly, yeah. friendly bloke as well. And yeah, um, I think he visited uh, our old offices shortly. Yes, before yeah, he, he passed did. away. He did. He and did. He, and every time he came back, he, he just loved the city. And he, you know, he might oh, not have been the loudest man in the, in the dressing room, but he, he got what it meant to play for this club without a shadow of doubt. He bought into that very big time and. Uh, the crowd can sense that, you know, and, and they bought into him. They won't buy into you just because you care about Newcastle United if you're a, a duck egg. But if you can actually play, then they will buy into you. We often talk about how we always felt sorry for Darren Peacock because he was the only defender. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would actually argue that the man we probably should feel sorry for would have been Pav. Well, yes, absolutely. Or whoever played in goal after that, Shaky Hislip or, or whoever, because... I mean, it was like, you know, the the guy that stands on the uh, burning uh, ship and just waiting, and you just see these droves of people coming charging at you. And in the meantime, uh, Philip Albert is in their penalty box having tried to chip the keeper, and all of a sudden they break away, and there's about five attackers converging on you. Uh, a tough old life, but... Um, 
you know, after he died, and a very good friend of mine, uh, Steve Wraith, was um, become his agent, and uh, he ghosted his biography, and he staged matches up here, Steve Wraith, on in memory of Pavel Cernicek. Um Since he died, he was uh, he was only forty seven uh, when he dropped down um, I, when he was busy jogging, ironically in a new NUFC top. When he was jogging along the road back home in Czechoslovakia, uh, the Czech Republic, um, his funeral, I always remember how sad it was, was January the 4th, 2016, but January the 4th, which is my birthday, uh, his funeral. And uh, my heart really went, he had been nine days on a life support machine. Uh, Steve Harper, who was one of the keepers at Newcastle, flew out for the funeral. Um, a tragic, tragic, and totally unexpected. Uh, nothing had indicated anything. Was a fitness fanatic. That's why he was out jogging. Um, and he just saw himself genuinely as a Jody in the club he, he adored and loved above any others. And he played in Czech in the Czech Republic. He played in Italy. He played for Sheffield Wednesday and other clubs over here. Was Newcastle United. Can you remember him ever getting angry? Because I can't. Because I, I the day against Aston Villa when Newcastle were beaten Martin Dubravka got very very angry yeah um, and it's not the first time it's that it's the most angry I've seen him it's not yeah. the first time I've seen him berate his defence for doing something or not doing something no. as was the case but from my knowledge from my memory I can't I can't remember Pav actually ever getting angry and I suppose you know <laughs> the way Newcastle played back then, you could you you could you could forgive him for for doing so. Yeah, yeah. well, as a defender, certainly, and certainly during Kevin Keegan's time, because he's the only bloke I know who liked attacking. I think he Kevin Keegan started the attacking defenders. I mean, now fullbacks attack automatically. I think it was Kevin Keegan that got overlapping centre halves. I mean, Sheffield United tried to claim that now. Did he ever watch Philip Albert? He did that in the nineties, like. Um, but yes, uh, I think he did on the odd occasion. He was vocal, but not necessarily aggressively so. He'd be vocal and telling his centre-offs where to go or full-backs to tuck in or whatever. But he, by nature, he, he, he was a very, very easy going and not a loud man. They would dominate dressing rooms, but... Um, Amazingly, from such a bad start, when he was nicknamed Dracula, he become a, a top top goalkeeper and is still a legend with Newcastle to this day. He certainly did. We're going to jump forward um, a couple of names onto who I think many people would argue is the finest goalkeeper to ever play for Newcastle, yeah. and that's Shea Given. Yeah. Um, who set the bar though for Shea to to reach? Because we, we'd argue, and we were talking about this before. Shea's obviously set the bar for Dubravka, for Cruel. Um, yeah, he's set the bar for everybody since. So Without a shadow of doubt, he's set the bar since. Um, and I think, if not necessarily for him, because he would not necessarily have been aware of it, but uh, I mean, 
the ball was Newcastle have had some very poor goalkeepers by the way as well I'm picking out the cream but there's we've had some dross inevitably you know you're doing Newcastle number nines let's not ruin people's Christmas dinner John <laughs> yes, come on yes we're not going to go into them <laughs> but we have had some just mentioning the bar um, I mean the bar was originally set by Newcastle with Faber and Simpson who were quite outstanding in the, the 50s with a cup winning side and then I think the, the person that carried it forward after that was Willie McFall who was here for so long and was such an outstanding goalkeeper as Newcastle when they won the Anglo apart from winning the European uh, First Cup they won the Anglo-Italian they got to the FA Cup final etc all with Willie McFall and goal and I think he was the bar setter without a shadow of a doubt but I mean when we had Shea given it was quite interesting because we came into a period where Newcastle were very, very well off for goalkeepers. When you think of Shea given and you think of Steve Harper and you think of Tim Krul, all sort of overlapping one another, how good is that in terms of quality? But for me, if you talked about the whole history of Newcastle United... Um, it would be difficult to come up with a goalkeeper that was better than um, Shea Given. If you remember, um, he served Newcastle from 1997 to 2009. He only cost £1.5 million and went on to play 462 games for Newcastle, which is quite phenomenal. He holds the record for the most Premier League appearances for Newcastle. Yep. Is- he was only 34 games of beating the all-time Newcastle United appearance record, ironically held by another goalkeeper, Jimmy Lawrence, who was the Edwardian goalkeeper when Newcastle were winning the league title and appearing in cup final after cup final. Ironically, losing quite a few of the cup finals, but they were in a lot. And Jimmy Lawrence was a goalkeeper for about yonks, 20 years at Newcastle or something. Uh, and he was only 34 games off him when he was transferred to, to Man City. That's how good Shea Given was. And for me, uh, quite outstanding. And somebody that had virtually everything you need in a, in a goalkeeper. I mean... In a way, it was sad that he never actually won something huge with Newcastle. He played in the 1998 FA Cup final. He was named in the Premier League team of the season twice as the goalkeeper, 2001-2 and 2005-6. He played in the Champions League in the UEFA Cup for Newcastle. Uh, It's a sadness that he didn't actually win any medals, but it is a sadness that Kevin Keegle and, uh, and Bobby Robson as managers didn't win because they deserved to as well. I mean, we mentioned the price tag there, fantastic bargain. Oh. Um, and But with, with Shea, excellent shot stopper. And remarkable that he was such a good goalkeeper in many ways because he's not the tallest well, again, it, it, how often have we said that when we're talking about Newcastle's history, when you look at Ronnie Simpson and when you look at Willie McFall and then when you look at Shea Given, uh, not the biggest guy. I mean, we were used with with a lot of goalkeepers who are, are man mountains and, and, and are bulked up as well. Um, uh, and he wasn't, but he, he was agile, uh, he was very single-minded and dedicated. I mean, this is so single-minded as a young man. He turned down Alex Ferguson, 
and then he walked out on Celtic. Now, as a young man, before you made your name, that takes some mm. guts to do that. I mean, he was originally, he might never have been, he might have been lost to the game because originally his sport was Gaelic football uh, and that's what he wanted to do, but he couldn't make a living doing that. So he wanted to become then a footballer because he's good and he wanted to be an outfield player. It was his dad that said to him, strikers are ten a penny. I'm not certain that's true, by the way, Mr. Given, because uh, we we uh, could desperately do with a striker and it's not ten a penny. Ten a penny, but goalkeepers are special and he become a goalkeeper. If you read his autobiography, the, that journey from, you know, Gaelic football into the, the professional game, the influence of his of his dad. It, it's an amazing autobiography to read. I do recommend it. Um, Absolutely so. One of the games that stands out is the thrashing off Liverpool. And I think for many people, that was the moment where I think Shea Gibbons' resolve was broken. A, it would have been a lot more. I can't remember the score off the top of my head, but it was... was it- you talk about goalkeepers being angry and perhaps Pav not being angry. He was... Def- Shea yeah. was angry with that one. That was the beginning of the end, wasn't Yes, it? because... Uh, I think it was supposed to well, we're going to say six. I can't be sure. I'm going to say six nil. I might be wrong on that, but it would have been a lot more had it not been for Shea Given. I think he won man of the match. Yeah, he, oh, he went crackers. He uh, went yeah. absolute crackers. I think it was that rightly moment. So, yeah. Rightly, rightly so. Um, I think it was that moment where everyone thought, right, he's going to go sooner rather than later because he was getting to the peak of his career. Yeah. You know, Newcastle would downward, downward spiral and then off to Man City and, and probably you could argue went to Man City a bit too early because he never actually he, he went just as the money was starting to really yeah before Man City become what they are now yeah. um, in some ways and this is utopia and this is me with my biased black and white eyes uh, I wish that he'd stayed just that little bit longer you're right he went because he fell out of love with what not with Newcastle United and the fans but what was happening to his club and that Liverpool result was obvious but he was only 34 games of the all-time record and Shearer thankfully didn't retire and didn't get transferred and, and stayed on long enough to just get past the post and become Newcastle United's all-time goal-scoring record which will stand for an eternity. Not having won anything with Newcastle, he can always hold that up as his badge of honour. And Shea Given could have done exactly the same with being Newcastle's all-time uh, biggest number of appearances for the club and I just wouldn't wish because 34 games it's not a season um, I just wish he'd, he'd made that it's interesting I always think about that because obviously Alan she always gets asked a lot about it you know I brought the record for my club in front of in, in front of my fans what more could I want but I do wonder if he hadn't won the Premier League with Blackburn would he have been faced maybe with a similar dilemma to given where he's thinking right I've got Two, three years maybe left at the top. Do I go now and try and win something? No. I mean, we'll never know, but... No, I don't... As much as I know Alan, and I do know Alan quite well, um, I don't think that was the thing, that I've won the Premier League, so I'm now happy. Uh, I've now won something. Because for the, he's one of England's greatest ever centre-forwards, and he's only won one thing in his whole career. There's players that aren't, and couldn't lick his boots... 
that have won six trophies because they happened to be at Manchester United and was the first choice sub or something of that nature. I mean, when he come to Newcastle, he expected to win things at Newcastle. Newcastle was second top of the table to Manchester United, having just blown the 12-point lead. And he thought he could win things the ultimate way with his hometown club, and he expected to win things. And... Um, he just stayed on and stayed on and stayed on and, and, and become a legend of his own club and broke the record. I don't think it's... I, I think that's a bigger deal for a local lad, which Shearer was, than for an Irish mm. bloke who Shea Given was. And there was a lot of career still left in Shea Given. By the time Alan was beating Jackie Milburn's record at Newcastle, there wasn't a lot of time left in his in his body. Uh, you know, he was just about at the end of his career. There was nowhere to go. He, he saw the record out at Newcastle. I, sh- I suppose a test of um, the man that she given is is that one of his best mates still to this day is, is Alan Shearer, and that 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 is a lot about how yeah um, well received he was at the club, how he got what it meant to play for this club because of arguably Mister Newcastle is your best mate, then you must be doing something right. Totally. And I, I still think that if you asked him for all, he went to Manchester City and did what he did, etc., etc., that he would still see Newcastle United as the, the club of, of his heart. I mean, I used to love having a, a little jibe at him because he, he's a lovely guy and a very quiet-speaking guy, um, but a lovely, lovely guy. And I used to always like to taunt him and, and, and Alan Shea would do the same thing. He used to say, hey, Shea, you must be the only Irishman who didn't know where Dublin was. Because if you remember, when we played Coventry, the famous goal he let in, Dean Dublin's behind him. He, he, he's backpedalling to pick the uh, cross out of the sky, picks it out, and those thinks he's, nobody's there, drops the ball at his feet. In those days, you had six seconds to kick it clear. The rules kept getting changed and getting changed, but you had to get rid of it in six seconds. Drop the ball at his feet, and he's looking around who to dink the ball to, and he knows he's got six seconds, maybe three seconds left. And Dublin, who's been behind him, whips round in front of him and just pokes it into the empty net, and it was a goal. And, of course, he's lived his whole life as the only Irishman that didn't know where <laughs> Dublin was. Um, but he, he had a, a good sense of humour. As we say, all goalkeepers are going to make a mistake and it's going to be a, a big clangour. But, by Jove, did he save with some points. On to, then, the final three names. Yeah. We'll talk about Steve Harper then. Obviously, just yeah. gone back to the club. He's yeah. um, on the first yeah. team coaching staff now, also helping out at the academy. Yeah. Um, had a stint with with Northern Ireland as well, um, coaching there. And um, he was uh, he was unfortunate because he was around Shea Given. Well, that was going to be my next point. He's a man who had to compete with Shea Given. Obviously, he played, um, you know, one FA Cup final. Yeah. Uh, Champions League as well. But to have a man of Shea Given's talent um, to compete against... How unlucky can you get? But how lucky can you get if you're Sir Boy Robson and you've got them two great goalkeepers to choose oh, from? There's absolutely... As I say, and if you bring Tim Krul into the, the, the situation, etc., Newcastle were superbly well off for goalkeepers uh, at that time. I mean, there are people that will accuse... Not Geordie's eyes and the word, but will accuse Steve Harper of being too loyal to Newcastle United. I mean, he served for 20 years from 1993 to 2013. Now, I know a lot of those early years 
he was on loan at various clubs. Um, but he served the club for 20 years, yet played only 157 league games. Um, that's quite incredible. Um, I mean, the loyalty that was shown by Alan Shearer was at least rewarded with a goal-scoring record. With, with Steve, he only played 157 games. And yet, as early as his 10th game for Newcastle United, his 10th game for Newcastle United was the 1999 FA Cup final against Manchester United. It was only his 10th game when Rud Hullett selected him uh, to play in that final. And... Um, I mean, that selection was really out of the blue because given a, Shea Givener played all, all the early rounds and was expected um, to keep goal in the final, as he had the previous year. And uh, Shea, who is not a man that gets bitter, he's a very, very nice man, is very, very bitter about Wood Hullard over that because, of course, as well, Woodhuller didn't have the courage to tell Shea that he wasn't playing the final. He told one of his coaches to tell Shea that he are not playing in the final and playing harps, uh, which went down like a lead balloon, um, as you can imagine. But for Harper, I mean, I was I was lucky because uh, I got at the time was apart from what I was doing with the Chronicle and apart from being a lifelong Newcastle Night supporter, I was running Gateshead and. I always remember KK prior to these couple and KK, uh, who was always liable to spit his dummy out at any given moment and any given day, bless him, uh, spit his dummy out over the reserve side, the central league side. Uh, who he didn't like what the league was saying, so he pulled Newcastle United out of the the reserves out of their league. And um, all of a sudden, there was a shed load of young players training Monday to Friday, nowhere to play on the Saturday because they just played the odd friendly. And I approached KK to sign Steve Harper on loan for Gateshead so he could play for us in the conference, which was just beneath the, the Football League. And... Uh, I always remember I met him at Washington Services Station, just the station as you just come up the A1 into the northeast, where the angel of the north is, met him, in, met him there in the services and did the deal with him to come and sign for Gates. And we used to pick him up in Easington. He was a, just a young kid making his way at the time. And he used to get on the coach when we headed south at Easington, which is where he was living at the time armed with Elvis Presley tapes, which he immediately put on on the, on the coach, and uh, went and played for us. And one of my great... I had, what, 12 years, perhaps, running Gates? And one of the great things I I had, one of the proud things, was I signed two goalkeepers that played in FA Cup finals uh, for Gates. And one was Steve Harper, who went on to play in, in, in the Cup final for us against Manchester United, and the other... Was Steve, another Steve, Steve Sherwood, who played for Watford in the FA Cup final against Everton when Elton John was famously in the Royal Box with a, and, and cried during the national anthem because he never believed a little club like Watford could get to the FA Cup final, which they did because of his backing of the club. And I signed Sherwood, who was a fabulous goalkeeper, uh, to play for me as well. But, um, I mean, Harps was... Absolutely tremendous. I mean, his, his testimonial in 2013, 50,793 people 
that is testy. Um, and that's the sort of standing he had and still has with Newcastle fans. And I, for one, am delighted to see him back at Newcastle and on the coaching staff. And he's an ambitious man. He wants to make it as a coach. And if going all the way to be a manager, you know, I've said you don't often see goalkeepers that do that, like Willie McFall did. He wishes to be, and he doesn't want to just limit himself to be a goalkeeping coach. He wants to be a coach and then a manager, which is something Willie McFall did. So mm. probably McFall's the one that set the bar for Steve Harper once you've finished playing. When you speak to him, you know, you, you get the feeling of such pride that he... That he Played for his club, they played for Newcastle, and he totally played in the Champions League, the FA Cup, and he's, you know, and he patroned for the Super Robson Foundation, and yep. he's just, he's humble, um, and you know, obviously, you will always get asked that question: Do you think you should have left? Oh, for the sake of your career, I mean, you know, a lot of people will say that he was too loyal to Newcastle United because he was said by shrewd judges to be good enough to play in goal for England at a time when England weren't really blessed with knee deep with goalkeepers, that he was good enough to play for England, but he needed to play more often. I mean, for about a season, he actually kept share with the team, but unfortunately long enough. And had he gone, I think if he'd been just about medals, he ought to have left Newcastle and gone on and played for another club. Uh, but it was his club. He loved it. It wasn't a lack of ambition, really. Uh, it was just huge loyalty for his hometown club and to be with that club. Um, and in a way, uh, mighty regret now it's all over and not going somewhere else and clocking up a lot more first-team games. Maybe he did, but will... Uh, Alan Shearer regret only having one medal to show for a career as great as his. He'll never get him to admit to that because he's got the Newcastle goals going record. But there might be moments when he wakes up and he can and I can think of a couple of uh, centre forwards that have played for other clubs and has got a shed load of medals and they weren't half as good as him. Just to wrap up, then we're going to mention and we've mentioned Martin Brack at the start and we'll finish with Martin Brack in a moment. Yes, but one man that came before him. Tim Cruel, you yep. know, again was he at a very young age. Yep. Um, but for me, it was it remains probably one of the best goalkeepers in the Premier League. He's doing a good job at Norwich. Um, the game, with the games against like against Spurs when he pulled off so many saves. Oh, when just, we won one 0 down yeah. the Spurs, and and I mean he just uh, it was unbelievable. You just felt that on the day. Um, you know, and it, I felt like that with Dubravka at, um, was it Sheffield United? Where I just felt, you know, they're saying, oh, our second goal shouldn't have counted with Shelby, etc., etc. I say, forget that. If we hadn't scored that, we're still leading, so we're still going to win the match 1-0. And I'm telling you why we're going to win the match 1-0, because they could still be playing now and they wouldn't have beat Dubravka. On that day... That's how good he was. And Tim Krul was that down at uh, Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, a great goalkeeper, a super guy as well, a nice, nice man. Mm. Not that you have to be he, nice he got to the be feel a that he didn't really want to leave Newcastle, but Benitez, for whatever reason, didn't work out. Yeah. Um, but great to see him doing so well in the, in the Premier League. Uh, it is. Um, 
a wonderful goalkeeper and do you know a better penalty saver? It's I mean, his, his record as a penalty saver, if you remember, internationally, he was brought on to save a penalty mm. uh, and proceeded to do so. His record as a penalty saver is phenomenal. Uh, a wonderful goalkeeper, agile. Remember, he played for us very, very young in Europe and then sort of didn't for a while after that and then built a great career. And as I say, to have in a very short space of time given Harper and Tim Krul was quite exceptional and uh, he's got his place I mean for me in my time and I'm going back to the 50s as a, as a fan uh, and remember them all you've got Shea Given, you've got Willie McFall Fairbrother Simpson and Cruel. they are the best goalkeepers Newcastle have had and interestingly we're forgetting about Fraser Forster who didn't even get a chance yeah, in Newcastle yeah that's right he got shifted out because there was That's right. Good well, I was going to say, can you imagine the number of goalkeepers we had at that time? And of course, Fraser Foster was exactly that, who went on to play for England. Hmm. And, now, and now, incidentally, it's you look Celtic. at it the same way with Freddie Woodman. Thankfully, he's gone out on loan to Swans. He's working miracles down there. Yeah. And Freddie Woodman can't get into the side because you've got Martin Dubravka. Yeah, it's, that's it's, oh, I mean, there's going to be a situation with Freddie Woodman shortly, where you think, is he going to become the new phase of us? Is he going to become the goalkeeper that had to move out to become a star? And it does become a problem, and that problem is rapidly coming to a, an edge. Though you would expect, perhaps next season that uh, Woodman would be the number two goalkeeper mm. instead of Carl Darlow to Dubrovka next season. Will a goalkeeper be willing to be number two with the record that he's had with the England age group sides and now with Swansea? Interesting. Um, I don't want to see him necessarily go away and become the superstar we suspect he can be, but elsewhere. So, out of all the names we've listed, yeah, who, for you... Yep. It's the best goalkeeper Newcastle have ever had. Well, the best goalkeeper, bear in mind, I saw um, uh, Fairbrother and Simpson in the 50s as a fan, uh, not a writer, but that's an awful long time to cover from there to here. For me, the best goalkeeper of the lot, Shea Given. Sure. Um, he is my best goalkeeper. He set the bar for everybody who's following and he set the bar for Dubrovka. We don't know how far he can go in his Newcastle career. Um, and in some ways, it's more difficult for Dubrovka because we must remember that he's playing in a much poorer Newcastle United side than Shea Given played in. Uh, there was more success for Newcastle and Shea Givens' time. Mind you, you can also argue for a goalkeeper. That gives you a good chance to shine because you've got plenty of chances to make good saves. Um, but yeah, best goalkeeper, Shea Given for me, without a shadow of doubt. Dubovka, if I look man for man with the Newcastle team now, and I know that our central defenders were blessed with quality central defenders, but Dubovka for me stands out in the current Newcastle United situation. And going into the new year, may we build on that, may we get a centre-forward to do at the other end what Dubrovka's doing, keeping goal, and can Newcastle United take off and fly into mid-table where they stay instead of keep dropping down and then... I, the great escape was a film I loved, 
I don't like keep watching it with Newcastle. I'd rather have comfort. Well, there you have it. This has been the Christmas special of Gibbo's Corner. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We do indeed. To everyone, stick in, keep the faith. Thank you very much for listening.